0: My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for coming this morning. So I wrote part of this sermon in a coffee shop, as she said. So this sermon, uh, this summer, our sermon series is called "Jesus on Every Page," which you can see up on the screen. So, uh, so this is where we've been preaching through different passages in the Old Testament, Um, and the Old Testament—that is uh, the first half, basically the first half of the Bible, up until Jesus came. And um, and we've seen how this summer about how. The main point in all of these passages is that they ultimately find their true fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, and that's not some weird interpretive ninja flip that we do here on a weekly basis. So, no, like everything in the Old Testament ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So, because the Old Testament, it's not a um, a disconnected mishmash of moral stories and rules. Like no, from beginning to end the Bible tells a very multifaceted but unified story about the person and the work of Jesus. So Jesus, he is the big E on the eye chart. It's like you miss the big E, then it doesn't matter what else you think you see on the chart. And you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, then it doesn't matter what else you think you understand about the Old Testament. So, and when we find Jesus on every page in the Old Testament, that's not just good information, that's actually good news that transforms us and transforms our hearts and our minds and all of our thinking and our feeling and our relating. So this morning I'm going to be preaching um, in a book in the Old Testament that's not terribly easy to preach, and that is the book of Leviticus. So so, and this morning um, we're going to be reading... Um, yeah, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16 about the Day of Atonement, and this morning I'm going to be reading the passage. I'm going to be explaining just the general uh, basics of what's going on in the passage, and then the rest of our time I'm going to be focusing on how the person and the work of Jesus ultimately is at the heart of the passage, how he's at the center. Now more specifically, we're going to see how the sacrifice of Jesus frees us to approach God without guilt and shame. So the sacrifice of Jesus, it frees us to approach God without guilt and shame. So let's pray about that. So God, um, yeah, I agree with everything that Becky just prayed about. And yeah, we, um, like through sheer self-effort and just uh, saying all the right things, that doesn't make something good news to us on a heart level individually or collectively so we really need your spirit to be have his spotlight ministry onto jesus to make him a big deal in us individually and collectively so we can see you as good news so yeah we really trust you for that we need you for that and like true ministry can't happen like that kind of true gospel ministry can't happen without you so we we trust you we beg of you for that and We love you. Amen. All right, so the passage will be up on the screen. It's going to be Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 22. If you want to look this up on your phone or in your paper Bible, that's great too. So I'm not going to read every single verse in this section because I'm not going to make this a two-hour sermon here because there's a lot going on. So I'll explain a few things here and there as I read it, but um, I'll explain more about it after I get done reading it. So this is God talking here about instructions for the Day of Atonement. So verse 5. From the Israelite community, he, and the he there is Aaron, not me, (laughs) like, he's talking about uh, Moses' brother, and he holds the position of high priest in the Israelite community. So from the Israelite community, he, Aaron, is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household then he is to take the two take the two goats and present them before the lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting he is to cast lots for the two goats one for the one lot for the lord and the other for the scapegoat so one goat is going to die and the other goat isn't so more on that later so verse 9 Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering but the goat chosen by lot as a, as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat Let's skip to verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood, which we skipped that section. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. So We'll skip to verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat, This is the second goat here, verse 21. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So let's go big picture for a minute here. So so God has had a specific purpose for the nation of Israel. And that was for them to embody and display the nature and the character of God so that over the course of time they would be the springboard to the rest of the world of the world knowing who God is. And in this way, God was uniquely investing himself in the Israelites and discipling them, so to speak, so that they would reflect him. So, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, which is right before Leviticus, so the Israelite people were slaves in Egypt, and God boldly and miraculously freed them from slavery. So, now this extremely large people group, this nation of people, were now nomadically wandering the, this deserty Middle Eastern region called the wilderness. That was where God miraculously provided food and water for them on a daily basis in very bold and dramatic ways. And in doing so, the reason why he was ultimately doing that is so that he could show the Israelites and display who he is to them as a sovereign provider, as a liberator, as um, someone who wants to draw near to them. And the Israelites continued to nomadically wander this deserty wilderness region for 40 years until God eventually provided a promised permanent home for them. And that's getting ahead of ourselves, because right now in this passage right here in Leviticus 16, um, this parachutes us into the middle of their nomadic wandering in the wilderness. And we see in this passage that the Israelites have a high priest, which was an office and a role ordained by God, and the high priest, he was not a religious CEO. He didn't have one of those cool collars. Like he, and he didn't, repre- he didn't represent God to the people. No, no, no. He represented the people to God. So we'll just put a bookmark in that and then like revisit that later. So with that in mind, one of the main responsibilities of the high priest as he represented the people to God was to take the lead once a year in what we see going on in this passage, which is called the Day of Atonement. So atonement means just like it sounds, at one meant, like it means the making of amends between two parties where there is an offense made by one party, and then there's a wrong that's been committed. So like those parties, like there's something needs to happen so that they can be at one meant. Okay, so it's just like it sounds, atonement. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, as we see in this passage, would enter the tent of meeting. Now, the Tent of Meeting, um, that was shaped like a rectangle. It was about the quarter of a size of a football field, and it had this makeshift wall around it, and uh, you entered in it through a thick curtain on one end of it. And as you entered the Tent of Meeting, there was a courtyard of sorts with an altar in it where uh, there were animals such as bulls and goats were sacrificed. Throughout the year, and then further past the courtyard with the altar in it, like at the back of it, there was this uh, this enclosed tent-like structure that took up, all, took up almost half the um, meeting, half of the tent of meeting there, and that was called the tabernacle tent. And when you opened the curtain on the tabernacle tent, there was a foyer area of sorts, and that was called the holy place. And in the back there was a, of of the tabernacle tent, you go through that foyer area right there. In the back of that, there was another curtain. And behind the curtain right there was called the Most Holy Place. And that was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant, that symbolically represented the real presence of God. And for better or worse, like that was like what was depicted in one of the Indiana Jones movies, for better or worse. So it was a big deal to enter the Tent of Meeting. It was an even bigger deal to enter the Most. Enter the holy place, and it was the biggest deal ever to enter the most holy place, because that's where the presence of God was, and that's where the high priest, as he represented the people to God, like entered there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement... That's where some really unique stuff happened only once a year. So the Israelites would offer animal sacrifices for their sins throughout the year, but the Day of Atonement was the capstone of the whole year's sacrificial offering. So it was the annual day of purification for the whole tent of meeting, including the most holy place right there. So Dane Ortland he says the following about this. He says, even with all the sacrifices for sin throughout the year, it remained the case that not every Israelite would have addressed these things properly. As a result, sin and impurities remained and defiled the Israelite camp and the Lord's holy dwelling. God therefore provided this ceremony, the Day of Atonement, to cleanse the Tent of Meeting meeting, and the Israelite camp of sin and moral impurities so that... He can remain among his people. And we see as God, like as he reveals himself in Scripture, we see throughout the Old Testament that like he is a God who wants to remain with his people. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest uh, reverently entered the Tent of Meeting alone. Like he's the only one in there. Like it's, there's no one in there except him. This is his spiritual fortress of solitude of sorts. And he's not doing this because he's an introvert or because he likes being alone. No, it's because he's singularly representing the people to God as he makes atonement for the, their sin and rebellion of the people. In verse six, the high priest brings a bull into the tent of meeting to first make atonement for himself and his household. Then in verse 7, we see that he also brings two goats with him. And we quickly see that in verses 8 through 10, that these two goats, they're going to have two very different fates. So skipping down to verse 15, the one goat is slaughtered as a sin offering for the people. And its blood not only makes atonement for the people, but its blood is also used in a ceremonial way in the most holy place to purify it as a place of worship. But then the second goat has a very different fate. In verse 21, the high priest lays his hands on the goat's head just to symbolically transfer the wicked, in the words of the passage, the wickedness, rebellion, and all the sins of the Israelites onto this goat, and then it was sent away into the wilderness. And Jewish tradition says that the, the Israelites would aggressively chase the goat out of the Israelite camp and so deeply far into the deserty wilderness that it was never seen again. Andrew Wilson, who is an author, um, of a book called God of All Things, uh, he makes a really compelling and interesting case that uh, one of the strangest things about Scripture for a modern reader is the amount of time it spends talking about farm animals. Even for those of us who live or grew up in this great state of Iowa, or people like me who grew up on a farm, like even when I read the Bible sometimes, I'm like, there's a lot of farm animal talk in Here. <coughs> But it makes sense, though. Like, livestock was part of the average person's vocational work, and they didn't have things like stock market securities, so, that, so that's why flocks and herds were often the primary marker of wealth in that era. But Wilson makes a good point that the main way that the Bible talks about livestock is not in terms of work, and it's not in terms of wealth. It's in terms of worship. That's because in the Bible, farm animals... Livestock are seen as substitutes. And not always in a good way. Sometimes they function as substitutes uh, for God, as idols for people to worship. But more positively, they're substitutes for sinful people. And that's what we see with the goats in Leviticus 16. Like the one goat dies the death that the Israelites deserved because of their sin. And the other goat has the sin of the people transferred onto him and is sent away into the wilderness. As Wilson says, with this symbolic double whammy, Israel would see two aspects of their forgiveness acted out in front of them. The cleansing of their sin through the blood of one goat and the removal of their sin through the exile of another. It showed them that their transgressions were not just dead, but completely removed. So shifting gears a bit, I remember hearing a guy named Tim Keller say once that um, that every generation is embarrassed by 80% of what their great-grandparents said, did, or believed. 80%. You know, and I think there's some nuance needed with that, but, man, I think that's, a very, that's largely a very astute observation. <laughs> because and the upshot of that is that, like, think about your future great-grandchildren. I mean, maybe that's kind of not in the distant, past, distant future for you, but, like, maybe that's maybe in the far distant future for you. Like, think of your great-grandchildren. They're going to be embarrassed by 80% of everything about you. It's like, you think you're hot stuff right now you're just going to be a punchline to them. <laughs> and that's because every generation is snobby about the past, and they think they're the most enlightened group of people who has ever lived. But the truth is that no generation and no time period in history is completely enlightened. Every generation, including ours, like overrates how special or enlightened we are. So when we look at people in the past, including in the far distant past, like the, like the Israelites in Leviticus right here, I'm convinced that if, if you are humble enough and you are open enough, like I strongly believe that there are vital transcultural truths that can really change and shape the trajectory of your whole life if you're open to it. So, in light of that, like I said at the outset, I just want us to see in this passage that the sacrifice of Jesus frees us to approach God without guilt and shame. And that's because we can see in this passage that the bad news is really bad, and the good news is really good. And we'll start with the bad news. When we see in Leviticus 16 that um, we see in Leviticus 16 that there are a variety of words that God uses to describe sin uncleanness, rebellion, wickedness, and he uses phrases like all of their sins and whatever their sins may be. So John Stott in his famous book, The Cross of Christ. He says that throughout the Bible, there's a tapestry and like a plethora of words to describe sin. Some, some of them describe sin as missing a target. Some describe it as an inner corruption of character. Some describe it as a deliberate trespass or stepping over a known boundary. And the Old Testament generally addresses sins as specific acts rather than an internal disposition. But prophets in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they just leave a lot of these breadcrumbs for us as they just depict sin as something much deeper, like a spiritual sickness that affects the heart on the deepest level. And then we see in the New Testament that Jesus double downs on those breadcrumbs and says that our outward evil deeds flow from an evil heart as surely as rotten fruit grows from a diseased tree. That's why J.I. Packer says the following. He says, Everything we are and everything we do is somehow affected by our sin. No one is as bad as he or she might be, but no action of ours is as good as it could be. None of our motives is entirely pure, and none of our intentions are entirely praiseworthy. Sin pervades our entire personality in one way or another. The point is that sin is pervasive. It's everywhere. And that's why we see in this passage in Leviticus 16 that everything needed to be cleansed. The high priest, the people, the entire tent of meeting, like everything. And it's important to note sin's pervasiveness, but it's also critical to note that the, the notion of sin has a Godward focus to it. In other words, we sin against God. Theologian Greg, Greg Strand says the following about this We reject God's rightful rule. Thus, the essence of sin is rebellion, not just bad behavior, whether it involves murder or envy. A malicious act or a selfish intention? In the Bible, sin is putting oneself at the center of the universe, usurping the place of God. Sin is our attempt to create a self-centered universe. And that's why the essence of sin is substitution, like we substitute ourselves for God. So we see God like at the center of the, uni- the, center of the universe. And like we see ourselves, and we're like, no, there's going to be some substitution there. We substitute ourselves for God. The essence, of the, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And because of our sin of substituting ourselves for God, we deserve to be punished like that first goat. And some of you might object to that, thinking that's just too harsh or that's over the top. After all, like when your child disobeys, like you don't need a sacrifice of atonement. So author David Platt has has, uh, written the following about this, which has been really helpful for me over the years. He says, Azim, an Arab follower of Jesus and a friend of of mine, told me recently that he was talking about the gospel with a taxi driver in his country. The taxi driver said he hadn't done too many really bad things, so surely God wouldn't feel the need to punish him. So Azeem said to him, if I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? The The driver replied, I would throw you out of my taxi. Azeem continued, if I went up to a random man on the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do to me? The driver said, he would probably call his friends and beat you up. Azim sa- asked, What if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? The driver replied, You would get beat up for sure, and then you would get thrown in jail. Finally, Azim posed-, posed this question What if I walked up to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? What would happen to me then? The driver looked at Azim uncomfortably he told azim you would die azim's point was that the penalty for sin is not determined by our magnitude of it instead the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against if you sin against an inanimate object you are not very guilty if I, on the other hand if you sin against a man or a woman you are absolutely guilty and ultimately, if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty. Sin needs to be punished and atoned for because of who we have sinned against. It's not fundamentally about because of how big or dramatic or frequent our sin is. No, sin needs to be punished and atoned for because of who we have sinned against that's what the first goat is all about that's why we need someone to represent us that's why we need someone to substitute themselves for us our biggest need isn't good advice our biggest need is good news and farm animals, such as goats, are substitutes, but they are imperfect substitutes. They can't measure up to the reality they, repre- they represent. They don't offer themselves willingly. They, don't, they have to be sacrificed over and over again, day after day, year after year, give it, providing a regular reminder of like how sinful we are. And although they can cleanse us externally in some kind of way, they can't cleanse us internally. They can't make us perfectly holy and and free us from guilt and shame. And that's why Hebrews 10 in the New Testament says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Livestock always falls short. Except the lamb. Because there is one who offered himself so willingly shed his blood so unreservedly and whose substitution was offered so perfectly that he can save anyone and he can fully deliver them from guilt and shame. That's why when Jesus was introduced in John chapter 1, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the better high priest because he perfectly and fully represented us to God. Jesus is the better substitute who perfectly and fully bore our sin that was transferred onto him. In this way, Jesus assumed the roles of both high priest and the sacrificial offering on our day of atonement 2,000 years ago on a cross. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God, but the gospel is God substituting himself for us. That's why Hebrews 10:14 can rightfully, rightfully say about Jesus, for by one sacrifice, it says, Man, you should look this up sometime. It's just like this is life-changing if you just let it. Man, it's like Hebrews 10.14, it's like, for by one sacrifice, only one, he's made perfect forever past, present, and future, those who are being made holy. For by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you immediately and fully, with no waiting period, have his substitutionary sacrifice applied to you. And because of that, you have been made perfect forever, past, present, and future even though you are in the midst of what you are experiencing, you're just being made holy. By one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever, those who can't get their act together. And doing so, he's taken away your guilt and shame. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the first goat in Leviticus because he takes the full brunt of God's wrath on your behalf but he's also the true fulfillment of the second goal because we're not just forgiven of our sins, we're also cleansed. It's been removed from us. Like our sin has been sent out into the wilderness, never to be used against us again, and we are fully cleansed before God. And that's why there's no reason to be hiding in shame from God anymore. Like you don't need to put on a mask Like before God, and just like pretend that you have it all together or to do better and try harder for the purpose of gaining and, and currying his favor. Like the gospel says, you've already been found out. We don't need to fear his presence because he's made us clean. And because the sacrifice of Jesus frees us to approach God without guilt and shame, that's, that obviously changes us eternally. And it also changes us in the here and now. I asked a few people last week from River City about how the sacrifice of Jesus frees them to approach God with freedom, with, without guilt and shame and how that changes them in the here and now. And this is what some of them said. The woman, one woman in our church said the following, I used to beat myself up whenever I made a mistake or messed up or sinned. I would, turn, I would internally fret and be upset for a long time, wondering how could I do this again? God has graciously reminded me that when I fall short again and again, that I don't need to be tied up in knots because he sacrificed himself for me and freed me from guilt. I've seen god work this out through my parenting as much as i don't want to i lose my patience and i can get very angry with my kids but because of god's goodness and grace to me and what he's done for me on the cross through his sacrifice i can approach him in confidence without shame to repent to him and even ask for forgiveness from my kids because of what jesus has done for me i can move on without guilt and shame weighing me down. Another woman at our church said the following. I'm tempted to feel bad about so many things, which is why I feel so free when I think about what Jesus did for me. I will never measure up and do everything right, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that's not the end of my story. There will always be areas that I need to grow, but the sacrifice of Jesus for me has taken away the pressure and the constant feeling that i need to do better and try harder and often like doing better and try harder that's a mask that we put on as we approach god he takes that away i don't she she goes on i don't have to have it all together and i never will because i am not jesus to that to some that might sound defeating but for me it is so freeing i want to know this more deeply on a heart level so that through believing the gospel I can become more gracious and loving in my relationships a guy in our church said the following i think the sacrifice of jesus freeing us to approach god without guilt and shame really empowered me to be honest and confess some serious sin to my wife this this last year it took me way too long to muster up the courage to confess but if I didn't know that my guilt and shame had been taken care of by Jesus, I would have never been able to bring my sin into the light for her to see it. Having confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf to make things right between me and God made all that possible. And all three of these people right here that, I just, that graciously gave me permission to share those things... Um, all three of those people are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the same reason why we take communion together, It's to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and what he's done for us. When we take communion, the bread symbolizes his body, and the drink symbolizes his blood, and those things were broken and shed for you. His body was broken and his blood was poured out. Like His life was poured out to give you life. He took your blame, your guilt and your shame, and gave you his life, and he was happy to do so. He represented you and substituted himself for you, and that changes everything. That's why we remember him. Like when you go and take communion, like that's you responding with a heart full of faith and trust in Him, in His perfect sacrifice for you. That's not you having perfect faith. That's having like a weak faith in a perfect Savior and one who had a perfect sacrifice for you. Before you take communion, just thank Him for being your perfect sacrifice and taking your guilt and shame. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, like man, you should you should hold off on taking communion because you don't have to take you shouldn't be going through religious rituals or going through the motions with things. But maybe you are ready to receive him in faith. Maybe you realize that you can't bear the weight of your own sin and you're ready to respond to him as your forgiver and your leader. And if that's you, then then you should pray to him in the real, authentic language of your own heart and thank him for being your sacrifice and turn to him and then turn to the table and go take communion. Like, God is a God that wants to be, to remain with his people and that's why Jesus happily came. So go you take the bread. You, t- you take the bread. You dip it in the juice. So there's two communion stations in the back, one on the right and one on the left. And you can go back on your own and take communion anytime during when the worship, worship team is playing the three songs that they're going to. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, thank you for good news. Thank you for not being. Thank you for being honest with us about what the bad news is. Thank you so much for embodying the good news. For living the perfect life that we were supposed to live then dying the death that we were supposed to die and wanting to remain with us. And we just pray that that will be ultimately um, what clicks, um, clicks into us as being true and makes us complete on a heart level. And we pray that like that'll change the trajectory of our lives. And that you'll unify us as a church body, like around what you've done, Jesus. And so we're thankful for you and we love you. Amen.